Hi, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week we'll be discussing a different trend or topic so you can stay informed the easy way. So, Madvi, what's the topic this week? So last week we wasted a significant amount of breath on Alice Schwarzer, who is a prominent German feminist alive today and not very good. So we thought we'd cast an eye back on other feminists in Germany. And then I kind of got stuck on Rosa Luxemburg, which is quite funny because she wasn't really seen first and foremost as a feminist. Yes. So she was actually an economist. She was one of the first women in the world to have a doctorate in economy and the first Polish woman to do so too. And she was really smart and she wrote a lot about economy and loads of different things. She also did touch on the women's question. She was all for that. She was very good friends with Clara Zetkin, who was a women's activist. She also had an affair with her younger son. I was waiting for you to say it. I was like... (laughs) To be clear, she had an affair with Clara's son, not with her own son. But actually, what was really interesting about this is that with her view, with this massive economic kind of view, you know, she was a Marxist and a socialist, and by today's terms, she would be actually called a feminist socialist or Marxist feminist. But I think what was really interesting for me is that through this really big struggle against capitalism that she was part of in terms of theory and also as an activist. It casts so much light on feminist issues, so it's not just isolating like certain little things that people... like. I think nowadays a lot of people are just like, oh, body image is my thing and I'm just gonna like that's the thing that which there's nothing wrong with or like we're just gonna reform certain things or just get the vote or just like increase women's pay so it's equal whereas she was kind of more about revolution and upturning the entire system and for her I guess reform wasn't really it was still enabling the same system so she wasn't kind of interested in that and Yeah, I just find her... So first of all, she was born in 1871 and she was killed, assassinated in 1919 in Germany. So she was only 47 years old and she published this thing called The Accumulation of Well. And what's really amazing is it was written like 100 years ago or something, but she had such foresight in like how the economy and how the world was going if we stuck with this system. And it is really relevant to women today and also the entire capitalist shithole we're in today like she saw it all so clearly and also what was really interesting about her is she's really pretty intersectional we were saying about Alice Schwarzer last week you know she's this kind of second wave of feminism that just wanted you know these things like just give me the same amount of money and give me access to the same things that men have and they left out a critique of a lot of the systematic problems and also their freedom would have been built on the oppression of other groups of women and then you've got third wave feminism where a lot of black feminists and mostly feminists of color are kind of correcting this but Rosa Luxemburg a long time ago was like pretty ahead of her time. So maybe I can just very, very quickly give a short insight into the early life of Rosa Luxemburg. She is born March 5th, 1871 in Russian-occupied Poland. Her father is a woodcutter. He is not necessarily poor, but he's also not very good with money. 
but she does grow up in a very culturally rich household. So culture was super important to her parents. They read a lot of Schiller, a lot of Goethe. They spoke Polish at home, but she grew up knowing four languages. So she's super smart. Like, yeah, she was fluent in Polish, like native in Polish and native in German. And then also she knew Russian and then also French. And she was honestly from quite a young age, she was super radical. So she joined like the leftist student movement when she was 16, which was illegal back then. Right before she finished school, she actually had to flee because there was the threat of arrest. So she went to Switzerland, specifically to Zurich, because like this is really weird to me. Switzerland was one of the first places where women could study at university and have full access in the same way that their male counterparts did. Why is this weird to you? Because one canton of Switzerland didn't give women the right to vote until 1991. Hmm. Switzerland is notoriously behind on women's issues. I have heard this, yes. Yeah, but weirdly not here. I listened to a very good podcast where they did note one thing about the universities, which was super fascinating, where they said that actually... It was more so foreign intellectual women who took advantage of the fact that they could come to Switzerland and study when they couldn't in their home country. So you had a lot of intellectual women from Russia, from Poland, from Germany coming to study there. What's also interesting is that she was Jewish and the acceptance of her as a Jewish woman in school like this was also highly unusual. Indeed, yes, it was. Also, what's super fascinating about her is that she loved nature. She was like very into nature. So at first she studied botany. She switched subjects several times at university and eventually settled on what would be nowadays called Volkswirtschaft. So a form of economics. She met a very wonderful young man at university called Leo. I'm sorry for mispronouncing his name. Gogesheth. He was Polish, but he was from Lithuania. So... The capital of Lithuania, Vilnius, the Polish people used to occupy it, and to this day they still want it back, even though it is not Polish. Poland and Lithuania have a thing. They don't really like each other. They've occupied each other back and forth. There's tension. She finished studying, and then she moved to Berlin. He was her partner, but he was kind of like a loser, because he just like never finished his PhD. He never left Zurich. He couldn't really finish anything. She kept urging him to come join her in Berlin. He never did. He just did things in his own time. He became her partner for a while, but yeah, he was a dead weight. Anyway, she moves to Germany. She's in Berlin. In order to become politically active in Berlin, she needs to be a German citizen. So she marries the son of an old friend of hers. It's like, in German you say Scheinehe. It's literally just so she can get the German passport. They stay married for five years, then they get divorced. They never live together. It's just literally so she can become a citizen. Yay, she becomes a citizen. She becomes politically active in the SPD, which is... So fascinating to me because, yes, in the back of my head, I do know that SPD stands for Sozialpartei Deutschland, and I know that it's the socialists, right? It's the worker party. But if you look at some of the stuff they have done in this country... But she was part of the radical left arm of the SPD, but she broke with them precisely because of the bullshit that they pulled even now. Exactly. She sort of butted heads with Eduard Bernstein a lot. So, yeah, she kind of butts head with this member of the leftist fraction of the SPD, and she writes one of her most well-known papers at this point, which is sort of a rebuttal to him, which comes back to the thing where you're saying that she wants revolution, not reform, and he was suggesting reform. It is called Social Reform or Revolution, and it was released in September 1898. 
that. She also, for a time, ran a socialist newspaper in Leipzig, but then she got into a bit of trouble there because people started accusing her of injecting her own personal views into it, and so she sort of stepped down and took a step back there. She also started her own revolution newspaper with four other Polish comrades, including her partner, the one, the loser. And they weren't even allowed to print this, so they had to secretly print this in Paris. So she kept having go to Paris. To Also, to be clear, it was illegally printed in Paris. So she would go to Paris to sort of like oversee the printing of this newspaper and then come back to Germany to distribute it. So like, she's pretty badass. Yeah, she's really amazing. I mean, considering we only had her for 47 years, she wrote so much. Between 1905 to 1906 alone, she wrote over a 100 articles, speeches, uh, brochures, all of that stuff about the revolution. So the revolution in 1905 was a major part of the Russian revolution that took place in the Russian bit of Poland, basically. And it lasted until 1907. And it was the longest wave of strikes and the widest emancipation movement that Poland has seen until the 1970s and 1980s. So it was massive. And because she was Polish and she wanted to and she was revolutionary, she decided to go back to Poland during this time, even though she would have been arrested by the Tsarists. And in fact, by 1906, she was put in jail for a few months there. And then she was released on bail and then she fled back to Germany. She was put into prison multiple times for small amounts of time. One time she was put into prison because she insulted the emperor of Germany and she got thrown into prison for three months for basically saying he knows nothing about workers. And that was considered Maestatsbeleidigung. She practiced what she preached, right? Like, Yeah, she did one time, though, end up in jail for two and a half years. That was when... More time to write. She did continue to write yeah. all the way through this and smuggled her writings out of jail, which is mad. But she did get imprisoned for a longer time because she kept on doing this thing when it was coming up to the First World War and during the First World War, where which was a brilliant idea... She tried to organize this international workers' strike between, you know, everyone in France, all the workers' organizations in Germany, and just try and get everyone to just basically not participate in the war, which would have worked. Brilliant, because the people who are on the front lines, it is the working class, and they're killing basically their own counterparts. And that's why she fell out with the SPD in the end, because the SPD decided to support the war. And then she started her own party and stuff after that, which was more radical. She also met Lenin and Trotsky in London, and she did not like them. Because she already saw the flaws in their party. She said she could already see the bourgeoisie in them. She knew that their party, their revolution would fail. Yeah, actually, when she was writing in prison, I think that was one of the things she wrote about the Bolsheviks and the Russian Revolution, which at first she was actually pro, but then she criticized them of seeking to impose totalitarian single party state, which, if you look at things now, is exactly the way things have gone. Can I just quickly make a side note about the Russian Revolution? It is not often talked about the fact that it was the female workers who laid down their tools and striked. They walked out of the factories and it was only on the second day when the men saw that the women hadn't been slaughtered that they joined the revolution. Very 
casually forgotten that women started the ref- the Russian Revolution. Also, Lenin was not there at the time, and he just swooped in at the end when the workers had done all of the, you know, had suffered, had done all the protesting, took all the credit for it, took it over. And this is why it failed, because Rosa was right. It wasn't really a revolution built from the people. It was a revolution imposed by a bourgeoisie person who wanted to gain power in the end. She saw that when she met them in London. Her kind of Marxism was like she still believed that you should have a freedom of press, a freedom of ideas, a freedom of people gathering and protesting and like grassroots stuff happening and this idea of spontaneity and... Yeah, everything coming from the working class, which obviously isn't the way that the Russian Revolution ended up, at least. After the SPD starts supporting the war, she and her colleagues Karl Liebknecht, Clara Zetskin, and Franz Mehring found the Internationale Group, which wrote illegal and anti-war pamphlets, signed Spartacus, because this is like shortly before her death. So basically she died because she saw that German imperialism and all these forces, she actually kind of predicted the Second World War, but it was during the Weimar Republic. That in true revolutionary style, she they tried to revolt against the government and take over. That didn't work. And Karl Liebknecht were put in jail and then they were assassinated and she was thrown into a river. Yeah, she was thrown into the Landwehrkanal. When I was in school, we learned about sort of the Freikorps and we learned about like the fight between the communists and the pro-Nazi groups in Berlin. But we never learned about Rosa Luxemburg, nor did we really ever dive deeply into it. But that's because when you go to school in Germany, the Nazi era is taught in a very specific way. And basically, but this is before the, the Nazi era. Yeah, but anything leading up to that is taught in a very specific way. So you didn't learn about her? No, I didn't know about her until I came to Berlin. What's interesting is when we think about feminism in her, because I was watching some talks also of Frigga Haug, who is a prominent German feminist and intellectual. And she said she didn't actually read any Rosa Luxemburg until like the 80s or something when she was searching for a text that, you know, to present or for something else because of the way that Rosa Luxemburg was presented all the time as either a martyr or either kind of like, you know, this feminine sort of figure that was sort of more of a symbol she was written about in in all these ways but she was never actually written about or taken you know seriously as a serious theorist which she actually was even Frigga Howe who was a feminist who like that's her entire line of inquiry didn't read her until the 80s and Verso Books just started in 2014 putting together an entire collection of all of her writings otherwise she was really dismissed. And then even when she was alive, when she published The Accumulation of Wealth, which we'll go into a bit because it's actually really interesting, she got more criticism than any other text that have been published within that, like, you know, within all the Marxists and socialists before. She read all the critiques and she responded as well, which is really amazing. I find her confidence really amazing, actually, as a feminist. Like, she was just like, I don't care. She said, well, she pointed out... That, like, yeah, my text has received so much criticism and there must be other passions at work, referring to the fact that she was not only a woman, she was Jewish, she was cripple, she was Polish, so she was not German, and all of those things played into that. But yeah, the accumulation of wealth was really interesting because she kind of corrected Marx a bit. She took Marx and Marx skipped something in his thinking about how 
capitalism worked. And she made this really important distinction, which is just so relevant today. I feel like all of us are talking about it. And it's this distinction between capitalist spaces and non-capitalist spaces. Mm -hmm. So I'll read you a quote. This is going to be really complicated to try and... um... Amazing. I'm here for it. Great. She makes this distinction for the first time, which is actually really important. So she says, and this is a quote, she says, only that work is productive which produces surplus value and yields capitalist profit. As long as the rule of capital and the wage system still exists. From this standpoint, the dancer in a cafe who makes a profit for her employer with her legs is a productive working woman, while all the toil of the women and mothers of the proletariat within the four walls of the home is considered unproductive work. That sounds crude and crazy, but it is an accurate expression of the crudeness and craziness of today's capitalist economic order so what's really interesting about this is marx he talks about surplus and you know there's a cycle where capital keeps on growing and growing he talks about it in terms of time she actually talks about it in terms of space so she talks about how capitalism in order to then because it produces surplus then where do where do you sell the surplus and how do you grow right you grow in terms of space Mm -hmm. so it starts occupying non-capitalist spaces first of all you can see the the discussion right now about how the domestic space has become it's just this awareness of, oh, the domestic space and capitalism are intertwined in, in some way, even if, like, should mothers be paid for their labor and all of that kind of stuff? That all plays into it. The other day I was looking at We Are Child Free Instagram, where they do a podcast, and I didn't listen to this podcast, but the quote from this podcast is, they want women to have more children, to create more workers, to have someone to oppress. They want women to be complacent. And this person had said that she doesn't want to have basically children to like perpetuate the system yeah so capitalism expands into other territories into domestic spaces and then she's also against bourgeois feminism so for example women who have you know if they were given the vote or if they were given money or if they could go into the capitalist space then they again would become consumers and they would like employ other women maybe migrant women to come into the domestic space and treat them as a commodity, which is kind of what we're seeing now. So that's a really important point. She's got a really good quote where she says, capitalism tends to engulf the entire globe and to stamp out all other economies, tolerating no rival at its side. Yet it is unable to exist by itself. It needs other economic mediums as its soul. So we can see this in like, financial imperialism in a way like you know colonialism with the way that we treat our environment all of the resources that are now being depleted but then also like loans to developing countries Mm -hmm. which then they default on their loans and then when they default you know the imf goes in i don't know if that's the role of the imf or the the world bank or one of those big organizations goes in and says well we'll give you more loans but you can't then spend on your national health system or you know, all of these things that government used to have, which according to Rosa Luxemburg's differentiation between capitalist spaces and non-capitalist spaces, normally all these government welfare systems and stuff are non-capitalist spaces. But now capitalism has like gone and 
become involved in that too and taking more resources from those things which we were just watching a thing on like the Greek debt crisis they were not allowed to just declare bankruptcy and not pay their debt they had to then you know start taxing their middle class and you know their working people who had not dodged taxes and then they had to do austerity and like you know it capitalism then these loans and all that influenced you know their schools and all this kind of stuff yeah because it it's not actually in the interest of the people, but it's an interest in keeping the system running. Yes. So if you think about this as expanding, 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 so now there's hardly any bit of the globe that is not capitalistic, and there's hardly any resource that we haven't, like, we're not about to, um, you know, in the next few hundred years, just completely deplete. And so then what they did with the financial systems, which did not exist in Rosa Luxemburg's time, you know, these complex financial systems that we've got now, but if you think about her theory and how it applies to now is basically we got all of these, you know, betting on the futures and derivatives and all of this kind of stuff as a way to prolong the growth of the capitalist system. But it's just a way of prolonging the crisis that we're in now. And I mean, that's a massive view. And Women are half the world and the women are the people who are at the the brunt of this. You know, if you think about like half the migrant workforce are female, women are impacted by environmental stuff, Mm -hmm. Uh, the dispossession of people and the people who are most at risk are all women. So it is feminism, but it's also like she's saying the bigger problem almost or, you know, it's a problem within a problem, if you know what I mean. And the big problem is, I guess, capitalism in her viewpoint although i'm not really a rosen luxembourg expert but i think that's her her viewpoint is like we need a big reform and we can't be not even reform just revolution revolution yes and we should not be focusing on stuff like that thing beyonce did was not good yeah absolutely and i think this is what puts her in such harsh contrast to a lot of modern day feminists we have this is what you mentioned at the beginning with the second wave feminists and specifically Ali Schwarzer who we talked about last episode where Ali Schwarzer very much stands on the side of reform whereas Rosa Luxemburg stands on the side of revolution and I don't know I mean as I was reading all of this I was thinking is she a feminist because she doesn't really explicitly deal with feminist issues but then the more I thought about it the more I was like actually we need feminism because of the exploitative system that we have. So really, her trying to deal with the exploitative system that we have would, I mean, you know, obviously, I don't know, would it solve everything? Who knows? But we have feminist issues because of the system that we have. Thus, if we overhaul the system or get rid of the system, then we will also get rid of those issues. Feminists like Ali Schwarzer don't want to get rid of the system. They want to gain the same status as men. And that's the difference. They want to maintain the system to use it for their benefit. Yeah. And I think, like, she did write a 1912 essay called Women's Suffrage and the Class Struggle, where she wrote about it. She was really supportive of Clara Zetkin, who that was her speciality, right? It's funny also, this is also a feminist thing, right? Like, as an economist, and a, like, do any male economists say, oh, but she didn't, address her Marxism through a feminist lens like do do men get accused of not doing this she also has a really good quote where she says like in my view of the many vulgar guys and the bourgeois civil law whoever owns bread rules the house 
the history of the family pattern is indeed the history of women's enslavement. Mm-hmm. So she is for the you know the impa- emancipation of women clearly, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But also, like it just reminded me so much of and that quote from uh, "We Are Child Free." And all of this discussion we're having now about, you know, that anti-trans, that's really kind of militarily imposing gender norms and all this, it's not about the gender. It's about upholding this family structure and men's and women's roles and this family structure, which she says is the history of women's enslavement. Because then you get women in the domestic sphere to recreate the labor force, which is what you do when you reproduce. And then they're also like regenerating the force that exists. So they're feeding, you know, their families and uh, caring for them and all of all of that kind of stuff. Like, and also caring for the elderly and all of this. And all of this became so clear during COVID, right? Like Mm -hmm. when it was women who were doing all of this work and it's considered, I think that's why women are pissed. They're like, pay me for this stuff. Yeah, the entire family structure completely serves the capitalist system right and and then we can romanticize it we can talk about you know nature and gender norms and all this and try and justify it in a thousand different ways in the end it's just got to do with economics which is why like rosa luxemburg at that time as an as a really smart person who knew the economy and who had all these insights just like she put her finger on it then like a hundred years ago i think that's amazing yeah I mean, she also, like, Marx will never be able to understand the struggles of a woman. The example you gave about enforcing labor norms into a home. Marx wouldn't see that because it's invisible labor, right? This is like something that's not in his view. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas she is a woman, obviously factored that that knowledge into her economic theorizing. And I think this is sort of a fault of a lot of academic texts that we have, is that they're all written by the same type of man, and they leave out a women's perspective completely. Not even just a women's perspective. They fail to factor in anything that isn't their perspective, and this is still the basis of our society. This is just always going to be an issue, and I I think really... When you say Rosa Luxemburg, like, you know, she had her finger on the pulse, or how did you say it before? I think maybe just women's situation hasn't really changed that much. You know, she was able to say, oh, in the economic system that we're working towards, this is the issue and this is a woman's point of view. Maybe it's just more of a, I mean, obviously she was a visionary ahead of her time, but maybe also just things haven't. Well, I think it has changed, but it's changed for the worse because like yeah. she said, is it capitalism ex- expanded and it's folding more and more people into the system because of the way it works. And now we have very few spaces that are not capitalism. And you can see this in people's moods, right? You can see this in them like quiet quitting or like, you know, the nap ministry is just like, take some time for your, like out of like, there are people who are like, you know, your productivity is not yourself. Like, it's amazing to me that people have to say this. Yeah. And they have to say this because we've expanded over the last hundred years since she wrote this into exactly what she predicted, which is that capitalism then will come into every single space. So like we've said before in this podcast, you can't have a hobby. It needs to be a side hustle. Anything you do, people are like, how are you going to monetize that? And how is that going to grow? I read a quote from someone somewhere where they were like, if you actually think about quiet quitting, it's so wild because quiet quitting is just essentially doing your job. Yeah, of course it is. (laughs) But we're expected to go so far beyond 
for our employers that just doing what you're required to do is seen as a thing. Because it's expanded, hasn't it, capitalism into our domestic spaces. So like when you get a Slack message at 8pm when you're watching TV, okay, you're going to have to respond to that. In many cases, in most cases, especially like in countries like the US where corporate power has just been able to expand without any check at all. And corporate power from the US also, if you look at US imperialism, all of their foreign policy is guided by their own corporate interest in the expansion of capitalism. So I don't think that things have not changed since she's been alive. Like things got way worse. (laughs) So they changed for the worse, not the better. I actually think maybe this is why I kind of have an issue with remote work. Because I'm one of those weird people that I will admit I do like working from home some days because I'm not a morning person and I do like rolling out of bed and going to my laptop. But on the other hand, I don't like the way that my job has invaded my home space. I like going to the office because that in my mind is the designated place for work and when I leave it, done. I don't like that now my living room has become an office. I don't like that my bedroom has become an office. Like, I need that clear separation. I don't like capitalism in my home in that way. Yeah, but then you shouldn't use Instagram in your home either. No, I know. I'm not saying I'm perfect. No, no, I'm just saying seeing the situation as like how mad it is that then it's not only our work. It's like, oh, then we can do shopping online. Oh my God, yeah. We can look at entertainment with adverts and so we're all always being part of the capitalist system unless you just shut everything off and like knit yeah and knit i do that yeah it's very nice which brings us on to our three things thing one try to engage in hobbies that are non-capitalistic and maybe turn off your phone knit go for a walk in nature i can't think of any other activities right now but read a book uh, Read Madvi's book. Madvi has a children's book coming out soon. We'll link it in our newsletter, but you should buy it. You can pre-order it now, and I'll send you all the link. She's giving me the signal to stop. But <laughs> No, actually, you're right. I should totally promote it. <laughs> but we just did an, an episode. I don't think this is the right episode. <laughs> we will link it in this newsletter and every single other newsletter until August, people. Is that when it's being published? It's being published in August. Yes. Right. Number two you can read The Accumulation of Wealth for free. We'll link to the PDF in our newsletter and it's really worth reading if you are interested in it. And thing three, when you're learning about history or historical events, especially maybe if you're still in school, maybe look for the female voices and the female intellectuals and revolutionaries of the time instead of just automatically defaulting to the male voices. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also help us by supporting us on Patreon for as little as €4 Euro a month. Visit patreon.com misinformed. For links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi misinformed.podcast at gmail.com We would love to hear from you.